Well, it is good to have some of these families in the room here today, and what a blessing. Thank you, Maureen, for leading us in that. Well, the question I want to ask us today is, uh, I want to ask us, what is it that you long for? What is it that you long for? Longing is a persistent or it's a strong desire for something that feels just a little bit out of reach, something that feels a little bit unattainable in one way. And so we long to gather again. We long to have a room like this filled with people. Uh, we long for summer. Uh, I uh, had put in the chat one of my projects for this summer is I want to have a block party with our neighbors. And I long to actually having our neighbors together and to connect in that way. And so even in our spiritual lives, we obviously we have things that we long for. We, we long for things spiritually as well. Things that seem out of reach. Things that have a strong desire in one way or another. And, and my my conviction would be that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, or even if you wouldn't yet identify yourself as that, that, that you too have longings. We all have longings because God has hardwired us to have longings. We yearn for things. It's part of the now and not yet nature of the kingdom of God. It's part of the, the things that we've been talking about in this series about kingdom culture, that it's a, a longing for more of what God has for us. We get just glimpses of that kingdom and we experience small pieces of it and we long and we yearn for more. More of his spirit, more of his power, more of God's presence, more of his peace, more of his clarity in our lives. We long for all kinds of things. We long it for ourselves individually. We long for, for it for our families. We long for it for our churches. I know I have these longings. I, in my journals, I have journals filled with longings and maybe you do too. And so this is the tension that we always feel on this side of heaven, is these longings for more, this longing for more of the fullness of the kingdom that we were made for, and yet now that we only get to experience in part. And today I would encourage you as you think about this and, and just allow the Spirit of God to speak to you about longings, that you would pay attention to what those might be, that you would focus on what is it that God is stirring in you that you are yearning for, that you are eagerly anticipating, that, that thing that seems just a little bit out of reach, because I really believe that God is speaking to you through those longings. God is teaching you. God is calling you. God is inviting you through your longings. So the theme this week is uh, coming out of our text uh, in Matthew chapter 9, and it's a theme of longing for something new. Not only something new, but something that is sustainable, something that is not just fleeting, but something that is enduring. That, that can extend for a long time, that would transform and change our lives in some way. And it captures this in the imagery and in the language of new wine and new wineskins. So let me just read Matthew 9, 14 to 17. It says, how one day the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked him, why don't your disciples fast like we do and the Pharisees do? And Jesus replied, do wedding guests mourn while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and they, then they will fast. Besides, who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. And so the context, as we see in this text is about fasting. And Jesus was asked a question about that. But it's really about much more than fasting. It's really about a new way of thinking. It's about a new kind of kingdom experience and how to live into that. 
You see, the people of Israel and even those that were there and asking, those who are followers of John the Baptist and those who are the Pharisees, they, they longed for more of the kingdom and they still could not quite grab hold of it. And so fasting is one of the things that they're asking about. And it's something that is affirmed in other places. Jesus even affirms it. But it was really in some ways part of a religious system that earned and worked its way towards God's mercy more than maybe they cared to admit. And so that day was done, or at least it wasn't the time now is what Jesus is saying. The king was here and this new mercy and this new grace and this kingdom of new wine was upon them. And apparently if you put new wine into old wineskins, you're asking for trouble. And so you have to remember that in those days, they didn't have bottles. They had leather that they sewed together, and they made these wineskins. And then they would put new wine into those wineskins, and there was a fermentation process that takes place, and it would bubble, and it would expand, and it would release gases in the fermentation process. And so at the beginning, a new wineskin is pliable. It's flexible. It's adaptable. And it adapts along with the new wine process. But eventually, the wineskin becomes less pliable. It, it assumes a definite shape, and suddenly it becomes a little bit more stiff or rigid, and it doesn't adapt quite in the same way. But it served its purpose. And so you wouldn't use it again for another process with new wine. It's no longer useful in that way. And so if you think about it, how often we long for new wine in our own spiritual lives, but we keep using old wineskins, don't we? Of familiar patterns and approaches, and it doesn't seem to work quite the same. And so what does it take to experience some of our longing of new wine? Well, I want to take you on a bit of a detour, and I want to take you on a bit of a journey back into a couple of the Old Testament prophets to gain some other perspectives on this new wine of God's mercy and grace. And it was interesting for me this week, God just kind of brought me back on an interesting journey through some of these texts, and it was just really encouraging for me, even though I didn't fully understand, okay, what, God, what are you saying in this? But I, I trust and hope that it'll be encouraging for you as well. And it's with the prophets Hosea and Haggai. And so as we go back to Hosea, Hosea was one who you might remember, and if you go, and you, I'd encourage you to turn there and look, and you see right at the beginning of chapter one that he was told to go marry a prostitute. And he does. He marries Gomer. And he did it in simple obedience. And God uses this reality and he uses this image as a sign of how Israel has been in relationship with God. And God says how this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. And so the imagery is of, in, in, in Hosea is of a bride and a bridegroom where God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. And in this case, a bride who had been unfaithful. So it's similar language to what Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, where Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So Israel is the unfaithful one. And chapter 2 in Hosea outlines the charges that God has against Israel and their unfaithfulness. And it talks about judgment against her, and it gives uh, a number of visual language and metaphors, including in verse 9 where it says this, But now I will take back the ripened grain and new wine I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and the linen uh, clothing, clothing that I gave her to cover her nakedness. So these were some of the images and things that God had given them as blessing and provision. And now it was that God was removing that blessing, removing those provisions in this statement of judgment. But if you keep reading, you see that God's judgment always is followed by God's grace. And it just marvels me, as I, even as I read through the Old Testament, that you see God's 
grace following on the heels of judgment so intimately and so quickly. That God is a God who initiates. God is a God who goes first. God is a God who provides a way out, even in our sin and rebellion and our lostness. No matter how many times Israel rebels, no matter how many times you and I rebel, Jesus continues to pursue us. And so it says in verse 14, Hosea 2.14, says, but then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. And I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. I just love that line where it says a valley of trouble, transform a valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. What a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace. And then let's turn to Haggai for a minute, a prophet that was calling God's people to rebuild this temple as they were returning from exile. And it says, the prophet Haggai speaks the word uh, to Israel and saying, it's time to rebuild the house of the Lord. My house lies in ruins, says the Lord of heaven's armies, while all of you are busy building your own fine houses. And God continues to say in this text, you've planted much, but you harvest little. You eat, but you're not satisfied. You drink, but you're, th- you're still thirsty. And it's really speaking to longing, really speaking to longing that these people of Israel have. And so God is speaking, and then he's bringing judgment on them for their disobedience and rebellion. But then what happens? It says how Zerubbabel and other leaders begin, along with the remnant of Israel, they begin to obey. It says that they began to obey, verse 12. And then in verse 114, it says, so the Lord sparked enthusiasm in Zerubbabel. Then he sparked enthusiasm of Jeshua. Then God sparked enthusiasm of the whole remnant of God's people. And I love that phrase, how God sparked enthusiasm. Or in other translations, it says how he stirred up the spirit. So God honors this simple obedience which sparked enthusiasm. And God says, be strong. Get to work. I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not be afraid. And then in Haggai 2.9, it says, The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Again, what a beautiful promise of God's mercy and grace and blessing for a rebellious people. And he just asks for simple obedience. So let's come back to our New Testament text, our New Covenant text that we've been looking at. And I I know that we need to be careful how we apply Old Testament prophecies to our New Testament context, and even especially to our modern-day context as well. But what we do know is that we know that we are now, as the modern church, we are grafted into Israel and these promises of Israel. We are the extension of Israel, of God's chosen people to bring this message of hope to the people of the world, to receive it and to bless others with us, with it. And so the people of Israel were building the temple in the passage we read about. But we know as we come into the New Covenant, the New Testament, that we the people, both Jews and Gentiles, are the temple of God. That we are God's house. The New Covenant church. That we read about in the prophets and we see being articulated and living out in the New Testament and continuing on to today. Paul describes it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. And through him, you Gentiles, are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. So it's this truth that we are the house of God. And I pray that what God said through Haggai will be true for us today too. 
that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. So our brief journey through Hosea and Haggai reminds us of God's judgment, but also of God's relentless mercy and grace. And he asks for simple obedience. And how God is a God who wants to bring old things to become new again. God who wants to bring dead things to life again in this resurrection Easter season. God is a God who sparks our enthusiasm, stirs up our spirit towards him for new things. And so then we come back to this imagery of new wine and new wineskins in Matthew 9, 17. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the old skins would burst from the pressure, spilling the wine and ruining the skins. New wine is stored in new wineskins so that both are preserved. You see, New patches are for new cloth that can accommodate shrinking when you wash it. And new wine is needed for new wineskins. Need, need new wineskins that can accommodate the expansion. And the point is, is that so often we mismatch what God is doing. And we go back to our usual ways and we expect different results. And yet God is saying, I'm doing a new thing. I long to do a new thing. God longs to do a new thing in our lives. In this house of the Lord. And it calls for new wineskins. There's parallel text in Mark chapter 2. It says the very same thing, a very similar passage that starts with fasting and takes us here. New wine calls for new wineskins. In Luke chapter 5, Luke records it this way, and he has a slightly different finish to it. He says this in 39, but no one who drinks the old wine seems to want the new wine. The old is just fine, they say. And I read that line, I think, wow, that's an interesting phrase. The old is just fine. Many of you might be familiar with Jim Collins' uh, best-selling book called Good to Great, as he wrote about businesses and business leaders and how certain ones could move from good to great. And one of the premises in his book is that the enemy of great is actually good. And so in many ways, it's true here, and that's what Luke is saying in this text. He says, no, 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 the old is just fine. Why would we want new? It seems that Jesus was pointing to having the desire for something new. And that we shouldn't treat good things as ultimate things, even things like fasting. Don't allow useful spiritual practices to become markers of salvation when they weren't created for that. Don't try to contain a new work of God in old wineskins, old structures and forms that can't hold it. Jesus seems to continually challenge the religious practices that had gone stale or were done in a way that were seen as righteous, but not for how they were intended. And in some ways, it's kind of like lava, that lava when it flows and it's hot and it's moving, but then eventually it cools and it solidifies and it becomes very hard and immovable. And in similar ways, so often the movements of God in our own life and in the church happen like that. And yet the kingdom culture that Jesus is bringing in is so different. He's saying it is time for new wine and new wineskins. When Jesus enters the scene, he messes up the religious orders of the day. He messes up the structures of the day and the things that they had been comfortable with. And they said, oh, no, no, this is good enough. This is is all we need. But he does things that they couldn't have imagined. He heals the paralyzed man uh, and forgives his sins. He calls Matthew out of his shame. He raises the daughter, the dead daughter of a synagogue leader. He heals the blind and he casts out demons. And he does all of that that's just recorded in one chapter of Matthew chapter 9. And suddenly you have forgiveness without sacrifices. You have Jesus accepting a tax collector like Matthew, even without repentance. You have Jesus choosing to eat with sinners rather than joining in the right, with the righteous and fasting. 
And it's almost like the religious leaders of that day thought that Jesus didn't take sin seriously enough. Which is not true. Jesus did, but he had a different way out for that. He had a different plan. He had different authority, and he would handle it in a way that they had never seen before. And they had no idea where Jesus' radical kingdom and his campaign of forgiveness would eventually take him. But they were beginning to understand the new wine of God's mercy. And he was challenging them to live and to move from living a public ritual kind of life to a life of authentic spiritual faith. And in many ways, Jesus is saying, you can't, you can't put new ideas into old mindsets. You can't put a new work of the Spirit into old structures that are tired and worn. We need new behaviors, new structures, new approaches. Things have got to change. You know, one of the things that uh, I have asked myself many times through this last strange and different kind of year, and it's one of the questions that I think I've had asked of me by people more often than almost any other question. And it's just simply this, what, what, what is the church going to look like post-pandemic? You know, honestly, I don't know. But again, I, I pray what God said through Haggai would be true for us, that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house. Meaning the people of God as the house of God, as the temple of God, that that the foundational pieces that we know that we see in Scripture, that they will be there, that God has put in place for the church in terms of the containers that we, we need. I, I wish we could see more of what those containers might look like. And even in this text, I've been wondering and praying, you know, which comes first? Is it the new wine or is it the new wineskins? I'm not sure. Jesus doesn't seem to identify that. But what we do see is that they need to go together. The new wine of God needs timely and ready new wineskins that can flex and adjust to the new work of God in the church. We need that corporately as the body of Christ together. We need that individually as the people of God, even in our own lives. What are the new wineskins that we are developing in our own lives for this new wine? You know, to try to contain new and old forms does spiritual damage, just as Jesus points out in this passage. So what does it take? It takes simple obedience, as we saw through the prophets, as we saw through Jesus calling his disciples. And as we do that, it seems that God then begins to spark our enthusiasm. And I pray that God would spark your enthusiasm. I pray that God would stir our spirits. You know, there is so much I don't know about this. There is so much I don't understand and cannot predict or even see at this point what those new wineskins would be about or what this new wine might be about. But there is much that I do know. I do know that we need new wine. Something that only Jesus could do. I do know that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. I do know that I can trust him and so can you. I do know that his desire and constant work is to bring dead things to life, renewing old and tired faith systems, and to create rivers of water in the desert wastelands. I do know that God longs for new wine in our lives and your lives more than even you do. I do know that I'm tired of the dryness in my own life. I do know that I'm tired of seeing such limited fruitfulness come from a lot of financial and even human resources in the church. Don't we long for more? I want to invite the worship team if they would come up at this time. They're going to lead us in a song of response called New Wine. And I just pray that as they lead us in this song and as we sing this song together, whether you're here in the room or at home or wherever you're watching, 
that you would have an open heart posture of, even if it's not physical open hands, but just an open heart posture of, Lord, would you just pour new wine into this vessel? And here's some of the lyrics of this song. And just listen to what it talks about. It says, in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. In the soil I now surrender, you are breaking new ground. So I yield to you and to your careful hand. When I trust you, I don't need to understand. Make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. Let's pray. And so God, I just pray that you would help us in walking in simple obedience. Lord, wherever you call us to. And God, even when we don't understand, as it says in this song, that we would trust you, we would trust your hand on our lives. And God, I know that there are people who are going through really difficult and painful things. And God, that there is a pressing, there is a crushing, there is, are things happening in our lives that are really difficult and challenging. And God, would you bring new wine out of this? God, would you spark enthusiasm in us by your spirit? Would you stir up our spirit and give us the desire and the power to do what pleases you? And Lord, we just thank you and we praise you for your continual grace and mercy that we don't deserve. But Lord, we pray for a hundredfold. We pray for a hundredfold outpouring of your new wine in our lives and in our church. And God, that you would do more than we could ask or hope for. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name.